0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Piano Rhapsody podcast, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow the journey of an amateur piano player trudging along with the hope of playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day on this very podcast. Every week, we encounter one of the pieces along that road, exploring the surrounding history and the music within. The goal is that we all walk away appreciating music a little bit more and that we can build upon this knowledge in the future. As we tackle more complex works, this is episode 6.4, the fourth and final episode in a series dedicated to one of the biggest names from the classical era, Ludwig van Beethoven, and his opus number 49, a collection of two of his shortest and easiest piano sonatas, number 19 and number 20. Last week, we looked at the first movement of sonata number 19 in G minor, which was set in sonata form a typical organization for the first movement of a classical-era piano sonata. Today, we'll take a look at the second and final movement of Sonata Number 19, which is a dance in rondo form. But before we dive back into that music pool, I thought we should round out our Composer of the Month by bringing up some of the darker, more challenging aspects of Beethoven's life. Everyone has shades of grey, and while Beethoven's work deserves the heaps of praise that have been thrown its way for centuries, some of the aspects of Beethoven's character do not. I think it's important that we try to keep as clear of a picture as possible in mind while we're talking about these major historical figures and not see his life through rose-tinted glass. So let's take our greasy fingertips and smudge that glass to make Beethoven seem a little more real. As stories of dark sides usually go, Beethoven's childhood was rife with domestic issues. Beethoven's mother died young from tuberculosis when Beethoven was only 17. His father was a mediocre tenor and harpsichord player, and was also an alcoholic, who decided his claim to fame was going to be living through the talent of his son, Ludwig. He was exceedingly hard on the boy becoming his first harpsichord teacher through brutal lessons, including frequent physical abuse. The neighbors said they would routinely see young Ludwig crying at the harpsichord through the window. These years of abuse made Beethoven grow up hating his father, and authority in general. His father also died fairly young, which put a 22-year-old Beethoven in a custody role over his two younger brothers, Johann and Caspar. Beethoven dominated their lives, fiercely protecting them to the point of disgust. For instance, he tried to intervene in his brother Johann's cohabitation with a woman who had a child out of wedlock by going as far as to rat them out to the civic and religious authorities. The only thing this did was drive a wedge between Beethoven and his brother and pushed his brother Johann to end up marrying this woman. Beethoven's overbearing nature over his brothers did not stop there, however. His other brother, Caspar, who as we discussed previously, acted as a sort of business manager to his older brother, also died from tuberculosis, like Beethoven's mother. After Caspar's death, Beethoven fought bitterly with Caspar's widow, Johanna, over the custody of her son Karl, Beethoven's nephew. Beethoven successfully won full custody of the child over his own mother, and Karl unwillingly moved in with his uncle. Karl was a young boy at the time and was trying to make sense of the trauma of his father's death and being ripped away from his mother by his own uncle. He frequently disobeyed Beethoven, often running away from home to be with his mother. Beethoven would not accept this type of behavior, however, probably reenacting the type of behavior his own father showed him. One time, he even called the police to have Karl forcibly removed from his mother's home. Beethoven soon became fed up with Karl's disobedience and sent him away to private school for good. Custody battles between Beethoven and Johanna played out for the next five years, but that never stopped Beethoven from inserting himself as an overbearing substitute father to his nephew Karl. Since Ludwig and his brother Johann did not have any children of their own, let alone a boy, Beethoven viewed Karl as the sole heir to the Beethoven bloodline and his legacy. While he was away at school, Karl wrote to his uncle that he was going to join the military, probably to get as far away from his uncle as humanly possible. Which drove Beethoven to rage. This scene escalated to Carl buying two pistols, climbing the Ronstein ruins in Austria, a place he often went with his uncle, and attempting to commit suicide by gunshot to the head. Fortunately, he missed and only grazed his temple. When he was found, he begged to be able to live with his mother. Beethoven reluctantly agreed but it destroyed him inside. He felt he had been a failure in his attempt to be a father to Karl. Freud would probably have a field day with his family, as the trauma from an overbearing father bled through from generation to generation. Which, by the way, happy belated Father's Day, everybody! <laughs> the last time Beethoven saw Karl was when Karl was leaving for military service in January of 1827. Karl had his hair combed forward to hide the scar of his attempted suicide wound. Beethoven died two months after that. Karl ended up marrying a woman named Caroline and having five children, four girls and one son, whom he named Ludwig. Even after all of their troubles, he still commemorated his uncle by giving his only son his namesake. Ludwig ended up emigrating to America where he worked for a railroad company in Detroit. True to his bloodline, he married a concert pianist named Maria, and they had one son named Carl. Again, with the namesake. This time from his father, though. The Beethoven's sure liked to keep their names in the family. Unfortunately, this Carl died childless, which also buried Beethoven's name and legacy with him. Like I said before, I don't say this to diminish Beethoven's contributions to music, but if we're going to spotlight a man, I think it's important to shine that light on different sides of the man. Sometimes we need to keep fanaticism in check, and remember that these great composers were human beings as well. Now let's get back to the music. Last week, we explored the first movement of Beethoven's 19th Sonata in G minor, That movement was set in sonata form in the home key of G minor, and if you recall, it ended with the chord called the Picardi third, which is when a piece set in a minor key ends with the respective major chord. Now keep that in mind, because there's a reason for this. The second movement of the 19th sonata is a dance in rondo form, marked Allegro, which means fast, but it is not set in G minor it's set in G major, so the Picardi third that ends the first movement is actually a lead-in for the second movement in G major. Now we've talked about rondo forms several times during this podcast, which we've always encountered as A-B-A-C-A, but this form is not set in stone, and there are variations of rondos that don't quite fit that mold. This particular movement is a bit of a stretch to get it to the A-B-A-C-A form. I'd probably argue it fits better as A-B-A-B-A, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. This movement is a lively, bouncy dance that is easily the most difficult movement of the four in Opus 49. It opens with Part A, which is a theme we'll hear three times throughout the piece, each time set in G major. After Theme A concludes, we enter a transitional episode which swaps G major for G minor. This section is arguably the most technically difficult, because the left hand is really moving with the rapid accompaniment, which assists the right hand's melody. Next we reach the second theme, which we're going to call the B section in our rondo form. This section jumps up from the G minor key of the transition section, to the relative major key. So to make that jump, we need to go up one whole step, and then up one half step. So that takes us from G up a whole step to A, and then up one more half step to B flat major. This section is labeled dolce, meaning sweet, which you can remember next time you're at an Italian restaurant because you'll probably see that word on the dessert page above tiramisu and gelato. The section is a little calmer and more lyrical than part A, ornamented with grace notes and a couple turns that you may notice. Grace notes, or ghost notes as I've also heard them called, are written as tiny notes attached to a note kind of like a barnacle to a whale. They're supposed to happen before the beat, as a kind of lead-in to the written note to which it is attached. Here, this is what I mean. Let's hear the beginning of part B without the grace notes. and now let's add in the grace notes. They're just there to add some color to the melody line. They should not disrupt the actual rhythm or harmony. After Part B plays out, we enter another transition section, similar to the one before with a transition back to the minor key, G minor, once again, to be specific. So if we refer back to our rondo form of A, B, A, C, A, we've been through A and B, so now we would expect to return to part A in the original key of G major. This second coming of the original subject is basically identical to the opening. So from here, we would expect the C section if we're following the rondo form. And this is where it's a bit of a stretch. Let me explain what we actually get at this point, and I'll leave it up to you to decide what to call it. We get a return to the theme in part B, only instead of modulating the key, it arrives in the home key of G major. Now this could be looked at a couple of ways. It's essentially part B once again, just in a different key. The subject material is nearly identical. So does it really warrant the inclusion of another letter to differentiate it from the previous part B? Debatable. The other interesting thing about this section is that it kind of combines sonata and rondo form into one. We've experienced the introduction of two themes in contrasting keys, which were parts A and B, just like we would find in the exposition of a sonata. And while there's not much development to be found in this movement, theme A came back in the home key as a recapitulation of sorts. While here we are recalling theme B in the home key, just like the recapitulation of a sonata. So whether we want to call this the second coming of part B in the rondo form, classify it as a new part C, or the recapitulation of the second theme in sonata form, this section plays out the 2nd thematic material in the home key of G major. Then it's time to close this movement out, and we do that with the return of the A section. Things are a bit different the 3rd time around though. The theme is still in G major, but it is extended and includes a section where it sounds like an argument erupts within the theme. It's a section of give and take with a quiet statement that is answered by a loud rebuttal leading up to a climactic chord. After that climax, Beethoven winds the sonata down with a coda that has an echoing melody line, a phrase is played and echoed one octave higher. The series ends with two full-fledged chords in the home key of G major. And here endeth the sonata. It's not a seamless fit to the rondo form, but for old time's sake we'll stretch it a little bit to conform to ABACA. Let's listen to this movement in its entirety. I'll be providing verbal cues to highlight the rondo form. This is Beethoven's Opus 49, number 1, Sonata number 19 in G minor, movement 2. A Hey. See you. Hey! Well, that concludes our stay in the classical period. I'm glad we were able to dive into Beethoven's life and music a little bit more. While the two sonatas we covered are definitely lesser works of Beethoven, they are still great examples of sonata form and show glimmers of the brilliance that brought Beethoven to his immortal fame. Next week, we're going to move ahead to the Romantic period, where the piano really starts to take center stage and we'll explore a survey of works from none other than Chopin. I'm really looking forward to it. Chopin's a personal favorite of mine. The standalone recording of this sonata movement without my verbal cues can be found directly in the podcast feed. If you'd like to reach out to me or have any questions, feel free to reach out on Twitter, at Piano Rhapsody, or by email at rhapsodypodcast at gmail.com. You can find all of the recordings heard on this podcast and more at the Piano Rhapsody SoundCloud page. And if you're interested in expanding your classical music knowledge to orchestral music, please consider checking out the link for a two-month free trial of Prime Phonic, a classical music streaming app with over 3.5 million tracks to choose from. Thanks for your time and your ears. This journey would not be as fun without you all. Hope you have a great week. I'll talk to you next time as we jump ahead in time to the romantic period.